And upon marking Psalm 421, you might retrieve your Bible as we will be using quite a few passages this evening as we give thought to our questions and answers. As we began several years ago to have the opportunity to, to have some questions and answers, as you know, the little box out there in the, in the, just outside the auditorium, always you can drop questions in there and we'll then make use of them at, at one particular time during services on occasion on the Sunday evening hour. And we'll simply give attention to those questions. And so on those occasions, you get to choose the sermon topics. I'm always thankful for the questions you've submitted and thankful for the opportunity to give our attention to them. They're always good questions, quite often profound questions, and those that can be very interesting to consider. As always, we hope that they're not only motivational, but they point us to what Chris led us in prayer to consider, the Word of God. And we know that God has in it that which is needful, that which is beneficial, and that's good for us. This opening slide is more or less just an introduction, pointing us to that text Colonel read a moment ago, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And so, as we turn to the Word of God, we give our attention to these questions and the answers. The first question of this evening is this. I am interested in obtaining a Bible with commentator's notes. What are some passages that I can check to determine whether those notes are biblically sound? If I may at least use a moment to share some of the considerations of what might be behind that particular question, it might well be this. As you and I know, we go to a particular place to purchase a Bible. And obviously there's lots of versions, and we understand that, and maybe that's a subject for a different time to give some attention to which versions are a little bit more trustworthy than others. But this question is a little different than that. As you also know, you can purchase a Bible that not only does it have the text of the Bible in it, but there are notes from either the translator or more often than not a commentator. And of course, those are rather readily available and this person has asked, if I'm wishing to purchase a Bible with these commentator's notes in it, the person obviously wants those notes to be as biblically sound and as biblically accurate as possible. And given that the Bible has 1,189 chapters, 31,102 verses, one would have a hard time in the bookstore looking through that in all its detail to see, are there some passages that you might look to more readily, more quickly, to determine whether or not it's likely those translators' notes are trustworthy. Well, I've listed some principles there that might be certainly of consideration, but probably what is more to the point? What are those passages? And so let's go to the very bottom of that slide and quickly thumb our way through some of these. One set of verses you might quickly consider are the opening two chapters of Genesis. Look at what that commentator's notes have to say about Genesis 2 verse 7. Or Genesis chapter 1 as it relates to the various days of the creation period. And the reason I say that is this. We know that today it is certainly the common lot of science to appreciate long ages of evolution, organic evolution, 
And so many of those particular Bibles, those notes I should say, will in fact try to put together theistic evolution with biblical creation. If, and it won't take long to recognize it. If there's mention of long epochs or ages, or in fact some kind of primeval man characteristics, then you know that the particular comments in that regard are not only mistaken, but given that those chapters are a foundation for many later biblical passages, including those by Jesus in Mark chapter 10, for example, then it's going to be very challenging to appreciate how that will be rectified. But not only that, in Joshua 21, verses 43 to 45, the last three verses of that chapter, often a set of verses that quickly you can consider for this reason. When God made promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, He set forth the fact that there would be a land promise. In other words, your descendants, Abraham, shall be given land. In Joshua 21, beginning in verse 43, the God of heaven affirms all of the land that was ever promised had been given by that point. All of it. The reason I bring that up is this. Premillennialism teaches that there is still a coming kingdom, that there's going to be a mass return of the Jews, if you please, to Israel, and they are quick to say the land promise still hasn't been fulfilled. If the commentator in Joshua 21 says the land promise hasn't yet been fulfilled, I wouldn't buy it because that's a premillennially motivated Bible commentator's notes. All the land promise had been given and fulfilled by that time. What next might you consider? I highlighted again that same statement at the top of this slide just to rehearse the emphasis of premillennialism. But with that in mind, we're going to notice it reappearing in just a moment. Psalm 51, verse number 11. Again, if you sort of have in mind certain things to look for, a lot of the false teaching of our day in some instances will include some issue of once you're saved, you're always saved. Now, you and I have heard that stated in various ways following John Calvin's teaching. But Psalm 51.11 is one of the first verses I would suggest considering because if it's going to be in those commentators' notes, it'll be there. This statement that once you're saved, you're always a child of God and nothing you can do to the contrary. One more time, you might take note, that passage will be one that will be utilized almost certainly to teach that. What else? In Isaiah 2, verses 1 to 3, I mentioned premillennialism a moment ago. This passage rings with such power and majesty. Was it not the case that God gave a message to the ancient prophet Isaiah and told him that down the stream of time that there was going to be a marvelous instance in which the law would go forth from Jerusalem. And you and I know that was going to be after the Savior came. And on the day of Pentecost, the wonderful nature of God's law would ring universally for everybody. In Isaiah 2, verses 1 to 3, if you are in fact such that the commentator's notes are going to slant toward premillennialism, they will offer excuses and other renditions of what that passage means. 
They, in fact, will not say it refers to the church. They'll say it refers to the millennial kingdom when Jesus reigns in Jerusalem. That's almost universally what they'll say, but that's not right. Jesus is never going to set foot in Jerusalem again. He ain't coming back to this earth, you see. We're going to meet Him in the clouds, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 and following. And so that passage in Isaiah is an often interesting one that can quickly point out whether there's a slant toward premillennial ideas. But I might suggest that if you'll go two down from that one, we may not need to talk about this one in detail because that text in Micah chapter... That's a mistake. It should be Micah 4, verses 1 to 5. So please correct that. It's Micah 4, verses 1 to 5 is an almost exact duplication of Isaiah 2, verses 1 to 3. And so in many ways, you can also look at that one and it'll be explained in almost identically the same fashion. And so as far as in between, Isaiah 14, verse 12, that is in a larger context in which mention is made of Lucifer. And if you're reading in these translators' notes or these commentators' comments, and they make the assertion that Lucifer is the devil, I wouldn't buy the Bible. Lucifer was not the devil. All it would take is a rather straightforward consideration of the context to tell you that. And if they have made that mistake very, very openly, mm, that's probably not a Bible to select if you're interested in those translators' notes at least. Lucifer there is the king of Babylon. Lucifer was a man on earth and he's described in a figurative fashion that way, but he is not Satan. And so, yet another one might be quickly considered in light of giving you some confidence in the notes that are going with the text of the Bible. At the very bottom of that slide, Daniel chapter 2, verses 32 to 45. As you and I look at that text and that prophetical work of Daniel, we are only amazed, in fact, so impressed as that particular dream is revealed to not only Nebuchadnezzar, but as Daniel interprets it. It is so rich in world history. It is so rich in the signs and times of what was to come from that day forward. But one of the things to notice is Daniel saw a great stone crush or roll into the lower section of the image that Nebuchadnezzar had seen. And as Daniel interpreted it, it is that that filled, it became large and like a mountain and filled the whole earth. You and I know that's the church. Those who do not believe in the Christian age as you and I appreciate the Bible setting it forth, they will again put a premillennial slant on that and teach it very different. The stone they'll claim is some very different thing. One more time, a passage that can often speak volumes about the theological background of those who are writing the notes in those particular Bibles. On the next slide... Let's go to the New Testament. In Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, the last three verses in the gospel account due to Matthew. Although there are other passages that one can readily consider, this is typically one quick one that you can turn to and gain an immediate appreciation as to the soundness in terms of the New Testament gospel plan of salvation. 
Jesus again rather clearly said, As you teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so the emphasis on baptism is clear enough. But those who do not believe you have to be baptized to be saved will re-explain that or put it out in a very different light, often explaining baptism as something after the fact. That is to say, they will assert you're saved first, baptized later. If the notes put things in that perspective, it's going to garble all the plan of salvation, almost every passage that refers to it. And so one more time, in that passage, the gospel plan of salvation, the Great Commission as it's called, is set forth in such dramatic power. And to twist it, you'll see that again in just a moment as you look at Mark's version in Mark 16. There again in such pristine beauty, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. It's somewhat striking how often the commentator's notes will turn around that verse and say, He that believeth is saved and is baptized. Now they may not assert it in exactly that language, but their impression leads to that conclusion. And again, if they have so perverted a passage as simple as that one, then what do you expect them to do on those that are more challenging or those that in fact require more appreciation to piece together the original language? What the Lord said there is so easy. In John chapter 3, verses 3 through 5, that rather famous conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, as Nicodemus came to the Master by night, you recall with me that Jesus and He were such that these remarks were noted. First of all, Jesus in verse number 3 said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. He cannot see the kingdom of God. And thus the necessity of rebirth. But what does that mean? There are those in our world who will claim that that rebirth is mental. There are those who will assert that rebirth is by an especial working of the Holy Spirit. And that's not what Jesus said. In verse 5, as He elaborated, He said, except a man be born of water and the Spirit. It's easy to notice there's a reference to water. There are those commentators who will go to great lengths, every way imaginable to explain why that does not refer to baptism. But all of them fail miserably. And so those who again will take that and seek to remove from it any reference to baptism do a great injustice to the Word of God. And therefore again, one would have far less confidence in the other references to the plan of salvation in any notes written by a person like that. Beyond that one, Acts 2 verse 17. This is not going to be the only one in Acts chapter 2. But it seems to me it needs to be a very important one. There are those whose notes will speak very unadvisedly as it relates to the work of the Holy Spirit. And you'll notice in Acts 2 verse number 17, there is a reference to the Spirit and it is hearkening back to a quotation from the days of the book of Joel, Joel 2 verses 28 to 32, and as Peter quotes it, he said, This is that that was spoken by the prophet Joel, then proceeds to quote it. 
And as he sets it forth, you'll notice the work of the Spirit's presented in that fashion. You'll notice that much can be gleaned about the theological import of the particular commentator based on what is said there concerning the Holy Spirit. In verse number 38 of the same chapter, the words of Peter when he said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Many things could be looked at, but it will not take long to look at the notes on that verse to find out, does the person think baptism is essential or not? Is it for the remission of sins or not? If those two things aren't in the affirmative, then likely again I would have little interest in the notes that that person would write. If baptism, and in fact Denise and I have noted more than once, as you quickly look through and find what is being said about this verse, there have been times we have explicitly noted the commenter will exactly say, baptism is not for the remission of sins. But that's exactly opposite to what the text says. And yet, as frightening as that consideration is, sometimes there are other things about that Bible that will attract people's attention. In Acts twenty-two sixteen, 16, when Paul recounted the explicit words that were shared with him, when Ananias said, Why tarriest thou arise and be baptized? And wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So in baptism, our sins washed away. Ananias told Paul it was. And you and I know that it was. And yet many a commentator's notes will again try to justify that sins are taken away at belief, not at baptism. And often that will become clear as words of that verse or comments without that at least are made. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, this one is perhaps one of the strongest ones in all the New Testament. For a person interested in becoming a Christian, a person who in fact would wish to be identified with Christ, the plainness of this just simply is evident. Paul would say to the Galatian brethren, beginning in verse number 26, "...you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus." For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And one more time, if baptism is a matter that this particular commenter would wish to remove to lower significance, they will pervert that passage. They will make claim that it's by belief that you're identified with Christ. But yet the text says it is in baptism. As you and I reflect upon that, what about Ephesians 2 verses 8 through 10? That particular passage speaks about this. It highlights, again, the consideration of grace and faith. Is a person saved by grace only? Is a person saved by faith only? If either one of them is the theological backdrop of the commenter, it will be made evident in that passage. And you and I know that any teaching of salvation by faith only is not biblically correct. And any salvation that is attached to grace only, too, is not taught in the Word of God. And thus, that's another passage that can be very illuminating in that regard. 1 Thessalonians 4.17, the rapture. 
If the commenter would wish to set forth the rapture, it will be in that text. It will invariably be in verses 16 and 17 of 1 Thessalonians 4. In fact, there are those who will lay a great deal of emphasis on the fact, don't you know there's going to be some secretive reappearing of Jesus and the faithful will be whisked away and leave behind the unfaithful. That's what the premillennialists will call a rapture. And often you'll find it there if it's to be found anywhere in those commentators' comments. But of course, the Bible doesn't teach that properly, of course, analyzed. How about just three more, and we'll let that close the list. 1 Peter 3.21 The like figure wherein to even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Does baptism save? Peter said that it did. That text says that it does. A number of years ago when Denise and I, again, as I recall, that particular Bible, it was by a Greek scholar of all things, a person of whom you likely would be tempted to have great respect. In fact, many of the comments as it were set forth throughout the character of that Bible were rather deep, rather theological, and sometimes rather abstract. And you might begin to wonder, well, how trustworthy are all these things? You turn to 1 Peter 3.21, and the gentleman blatantly and very directly says, despite what this says, baptism does not save. Well, there's the end of that. That answers your question. In Revelation 1 verse 1, you again may find on occasion, as the book of Revelation is rather figurative, as it itself explains, you often will find that there are references even there to a rapture and to the character of the book of Revelation. And so in Revelation 20, verse number 4, you will find a rather powerful presentation, if it's going to be there at all, of a millennial reign on earth. A thousand-year reign, and there are those who often will develop a lengthy discussion from Revelation 20, I'll close that listing at that point by saying this. This isn't the only set of verses that you might consider, but I would at least offer it as a good basis set because they can be checked relatively quickly, and you can find out almost immediately the theological slant of the person writing those commenters' notes. If all of these are on point, you likely have come across, rarely I might admit, but you've likely come across a set of notes that would be rather highly regarded or at least reasonably worthy of strong consideration. So that was our first question of the night. How about question number two? This question reads as follows. Did the Old Testament command men to wear beards? Isn't that interesting? Did men in the Old Testament have to wear beards? Well, as you look on that slide, I've asked you to consider the following. There are a number of passages that make reference to facial hair on men. And if I could at least direct you to some of them. In Leviticus 14, verse number 9, it would there seem that it certainly wasn't unusual for a Hebrew men to have beards. That was a passage that talked about identifying leprosy and what was to be done in that case when the leper was healed. 
And yet as the statement was made, it was in the same context with hair on the head. And it would seem thus that perhaps it was not as uncommon, or it was as common, I should say, for the facial hair on a man to not be at all an unusual thing to witness. But I might say that in Leviticus 19.27, as well as Leviticus 21.5, it would seem there that the Hebrews were exactly told not to cut those beards. And if that be the case, then clearly those that had them must have been rather lengthy, or at least they were not short or small in their character. There are some other verses that it seems would even add to our understanding of that point. There are a number of passages in the Old Testament that directly spoke about not having the beard or having it shaven improperly to being a very insulting thing, a very degrading thing. In fact, so degrading and so insulting that it would not be proper to even be seen in public. Now, to develop that, I might point us to 2 Samuel 10. You may recall there that some of David's servants were such that the enemies, in fact, cut off part of their beard and did some other things to them too. And David said this, You go and you stay and let that beard grow back, and you let those other things reappear before you again have to be seen as notably in public. Well, notice again the insulting character that went with the beard being treated that fashion. In Isaiah 15, 2, as well as Jeremiah 48, there's also references to the removal of the beard as extremely insulting. From what I understand, Arabs in the, that part of the world today still, by and large, feel that way. They would tolerate you insulting their house. They might tolerate you insulting their camel or something else. But the last straw is to insult their beard. If you by any means insult it, those are almost words of confrontation. Now that's my understanding of the way they look upon the behavior, the existence, and the way the beard appears. In addition to that, in Ezekiel chapter 5, beginning in verse number 1, there are references there to where Ezekiel was such that the cutting of the beard was a sign of God's judgment upon God's people. They had rebelled, they had been dis disobedient, and the cutting of that beard was a sign of God's judgment on them. Again, not a good thing. I might also say that many of the notable Old Testament characters, we know they had beards. I've compiled at least a listing for you. We know these to be the case because of the actual text of the Word of God. Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel 19.24 had a beard. Not only that, David, King David had a beard, as we read in 1 Samuel 21.13. Aaron, the brother of Moses, had a beard. Psalm 133, verse number 1. Ezekiel had a beard. Ezekiel chapter 5, verse 1. Ezra, the prophet, had a beard, Ezra 9, verse 3. Even Amasa, 2 Samuel 20, verse 9. That gentleman quite associated in the, day, in the life and times of David, he had a beard. I perhaps have saved, though, the most interesting one until the very last point on that slide. Did Jesus have a beard? 
Good question. It would seem to me quite strongly that he did. Based on a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 50, I'd like to read it. In Isaiah 50, verse number 6, we read the following. Keeping in mind that this particular passage has to do with a prophecy as it related to Jesus Himself, written a long time before Jesus, of course, lived on earth. But this statement is easy enough to see. The Lord God hath opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned, neither turned away back. Now listen to verse 6. I, that's a reference to Christ, I gave my back to the smiters. The Lord was flogged. He was scourged. This prophecy would speak about the behavior and the conduct that was delivered on Him in those hours right up before the crucifixion. But then the verse goes on to say, My cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. That seems a clear reference to the facial hair of Jesus. And the text says that among the other things they did to Him leading up to the crucifixion, we know they did a lot. Platted a crown of thorns, scourged Him, took off His clothes and put the, the others on to mock Him as a king and then put back on His clothes. But among all of that, they pulled off His facial hair. Think how painful that must have been on top of everything else. Likely that part we don't really think too much about because as far as I can tell, the New Testament writers do not reference it. But Isaiah did. It would seem Jesus had a beard. And it was used as a part of His mistreatment in the hours surrounding the crucifixion. So perhaps we can make a few final comments. Among the things we have seen, there's a lot of references about the Hebrew men having beards. I'm not able to find any commandment that they had to have one. But it certainly seems as if that was the expectation. It certainly seems as if that was the usual behavior. It would seem in Ezekiel 44.20 that it was possible to trim it or at least keep it looking decent or reasonable. And with that, we'll close our consideration of that question. There are no references in the New Testament to God commanding His people, His men, to wear a beard. And so today, that's just the personal choice of each individual man. Question number three. Our final question of the evening. This question is going to ask us to make consideration of two passages. It reads as directly as this. How do you harmonize Ephesians 6 verse 12 with Romans 13 verse 1? So let us turn to the Ephesians passage. Ephesians chapter 6. As you're turning to that, you might remember that in that closing chapter of the Ephesian letter, we do find a very beautiful description of the so-called armor of God. Verse number 10 begins like this, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. We'll pause at that point. Verse 12 has been set before us. And we have been told to stand, to equip ourselves, 
And in so doing that we shall be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And verse 12 then made mention of principalities and powers. And clearly, if we're standing against them, we're resisting them. Hold that thought in mind. Look back to Romans 13, 1 now. In that passage, keeping in mind we have just been told to equip ourselves to stand, to resist. Romans 13, beginning in verse 1, reads, "...let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. For there is no power but of God, the powers that be are ordained of God." Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. In one verse, we're told to resist. In the other, we're told not to resist. What's going on? Is there a contradiction here? How do we appreciate the harmony seen in these two passages? You'll notice the way that I have asked you to consider it is this. First of all, that Ephesians passage. Did you notice the end of verse number 11? Who is it that's prompting the efforts and the work of these principalities and powers? He had just mentioned the wiles of the devil. The one behind these activities, the one prompting and promoting them is the devil. It's devilish activity. And certainly the devil is often such that. He has many of those on earth who are helping to carry out His work. It is entirely possible that rulers and kings and those in authority may be motivated by what is not good, by what is not godly. And they may make decrees and various things that are not entirely good at all for a Christian. The thrust of that Ephesians 6 passage, we have to be equipped with the various pieces of that armament. Faith, perseverance, prayer, the Word of God, and the, all the other things mentioned, so that whatever is promoted and whatever is asserted, we will not fall prey to it. We will not, you see, be given by allowing our attention to be swayed by what these principalities and powers may affirm. May we never forget that in the Second Corinthians 2, Paul made reference there to the fact that the devil has devices. He has a plan of attack. He does not go about his work haphazardly. He has a plan to get to me and to you. No wonder then we need to be equipped with this armament in such a way we can resist those fiery darts as he casts them. But what then does the Romans 13 passage mean? In its context, who are these powers? Let's let Paul identify it in verse 3. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same, for he is the minister of God to thee for good. This passage, you see, isn't directly talking about the devil. It's talking about governmental powers, officials, if you please. And like we just noted, it may well be that they can be misguided and they may legislate improperly, at least in the ways of God. But may we never forget the authority that, that governmental leaders have is authority that God permits them to have. Did He not say in Romans 1, For there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. 
doesn't say that they'll always do what God's will is, but their right to exist, their right to legislate, their right, you see, to carry out those things that they do is authority given by God. Jesus told that to Pilate. Do you recall in the conversation in John 19? During the midst of that conversation, Jesus very bluntly told him, you would have no power unless my Father had given it to you. And that was a, that was a very godless Roman ruler. To put those together, I've asked you to note the bottom. You and I then, in that Romans 13 passage, are told we must submit to the authority of men in governmental positions so long as it doesn't contravene or contradict the Word of God. We ought to obey God rather than men, Acts 5.29. Now, when they legislate in such a way that it's not consistent with the Word of God, then we have to make our choice and we have to go with God's Word every time. But as long as there is no contradiction between them, we do, of course, seek to abide by the regulations of the civil authorities. But in that Ephesians passage, even if it is the civil authorities, we are not going to jeopardize our soul just to obey them. And we're not going to move in the direction of just because the government says so. We're going to oppose evil. We'll obey the authorities to the extent we can but we're going to have God's armament with us. No contradiction, it would seem, between these passages. They're talking about somewhat different things. But with it, haven't we learned some interesting conclusions and some reminders for ourselves? Let's close our lesson tonight. We'll do that like this. Bible questions and answers, these questions and answer periods that we have from time to time, always thankful for them. And as always, please avail yourself of that little box there in the foyer. Just drop your question in there. You don't have to sign your name. I'm always happy to not know who wrote that question. In fact, as we consider it, it's always a good question because it helps us in our appreciation of applying the Word of God to our life. I hope tonight that as we've thought about how to identify perhaps the accuracy in some translator's notes, maybe we've been encouraged in that regard. And as we've considered the beard, notice again what might have been thought to be that innocent. The Bible does at least have some things to say about it. And lastly, as we looked at Ephesians chapter 6 compared to Romans chapter 13, this evening as we each analyze our life, are you and I in the faith? 2 Corinthians 13.5 will demand that we examine ourselves whether we be in the faith. What about me and you tonight? If the Lord will were to return this evening, are we ready? Are we at ease with what shall transpire shortly thereafter? If we can help you tonight, if there's anyone in this assembly, and maybe upon reflection of your life over the last day or two, you've thought about some things that just aren't consistent with the Bible. We want you to know the Lord loves you. We do as well, and we want to be of assistance in whatever way we can. If you'd like to become a Christian, you're required to believe in Jesus and repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. If you have known the wonder and the loveliness of that set of events and the blessings that followed it, but you haven't been faithful to that calling, Ephesians 4 verses 1 to 3 will remind you of the highness of that calling and the specialness of it. And don't you want to come back to what you once had? If you would confess those errors and repent of them, we'd be delighted to pray on your behalf. 
And in so doing, Jesus has promised to welcome you with open arms to a position of faithfulness to put your name again in the book of life. If tonight we could be of assistance in one of these ways, we'd be delighted to help. Brother Eddie's chosen the song of encouragement. Now's a good time to come, conveniently so, while together we stand and while we sing.